The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. We have come to the end of our seven-week class tonight. And uh, you've noticed, I'm sure, those of you who've been taking these Buddhist studies classes for a while, that there's a lot of information. So part of what we're doing as we receive a lot of information is we're, we're continually distilling it, keeping it really simple. So one of the basic themes, and so much of the practice the Buddha uh, taught, pointed to, is uh, how to keep or what themes to keep in mind. How to keep a theme in mind and what themes are good themes to keep in mind. So instead of thinking that thinking is the problem, it's really a question of like, well, what is actually skill? What kind of thinking is actually skillful? What theme, what sort of conceptual theme, when brought to mind, kept in mind, changes how we, the mind, understands experience. So, for example, one theme to keep, keep in mind is a shortened version of the Four Noble Truths that we've been studying these last seven weeks. Suffering and the end of suffering. It's really the <clears throat> most simple theme. I mean, there are other really simple themes like noticing the changing nature. And, of course, all the good themes are really just different ways to illuminate the way it is, right? So suffering and the end of suffering, it's just a way for the mind to get interested, like it's a prop or a support to help sustain the mind's interest in the dynamic of being a human being, in that moment-to-moment dynamic of being a human being. Excuse me, how to stay close to that. And we begin to make very clear correlations like around the establishment of self, selfing. (coughs) When there's tension, when there's contraction, when there's stress, when things feel heavy, there's always a sense of self. And when things are light and free and easy, full of love, full of a sense of connection or wholeness, that strong, set, or fixed sense of self is either diminished or is nowhere to be seen in that moment. It's just not there. So I sent out earlier this afternoon um, a handout that I wrote up just with the 12 insights. Some of you have already memorized it. But take a look at it, and then just some notes, some notes to reflect. So, if the suffering and the end of suffering is too simplistic, then use these twelve insights, or the four truths, or the twelve insights, three insights for each of the four truths. So, there are twelve insights. You can use them. There is, as I'm tuning into my present moment experience, there is. Stress. I notice that I'm tight. Well, even if you're not tight, like even if the mind isn't reacting, even then we can notice experience is unsatisfying, unsatisfactory. It isn't a landing place. I can't get ground. So we just notice that and we notice that it's relevant, like the fact that we can't get from life or from an experience what we're conditioned to want, that's interesting. So there is dukkha, it should be understood, it has been understood. We're really fascinated, like of all the themes for investigation, you know, the top two in, in the Buddhist tradition is getting interested in the changing nature of phenomena, everything is process, not thing. And the other one is the unsatisfying nature of experience. Now remember, that doesn't mean it's unpleasant. It means it can't be grasped in the way the ego wants to grasp it. 
I really noticed that and, you know, I was sitting at home working on the program tonight and it's just alternating between it being so peaceful and pleasant, just sort of sitting there doing my work. And uh, so it was clearly, obviously pleasant, the experience. And it was unsatisfying. It's like a really useful reflection. So unpleasant experience is unsatisfying, neutral experience is unsatisfying, and pleasant experience is also not satisfying. It doesn't um, quench the desiring heart. It doesn't resolve the being at home in that really pleasant way didn't resolve anything in any meaningful or lasting way in my heart. And we know this because we've had, I mean, hopefully, we've had a lot of pleasant experience, but the uneasiness of our heart, the desiring of our heart, that's not quenched, no matter how much good fortune we've had in our lives. We're always looking forward, like, looking forward to going home, then when we're home, looking forward to being in bed. You know, when we're in bed, looking forward to falling asleep. I mean, there's always, it goes on and on like that. So we want to notice that. And then there's a cause. So that uneasiness and that uneasiness being a problem. And so this is the dynamic. When we become, when the mind turns the limited, uncertain, and unsatisfactory nature of experience into a personal problem, there's suffering. So when the Buddha says there's dukkha, he doesn't mean, it's not a guarantee for suffering. We have, the mind has to construct a somebody who doesn't like the limited, uncertain, and unsatisfactory nature of experience. That it's flow, it's a process, it isn't a thing that we can stand on or make our home. The self doesn't find a home. It's always looking for a home, but it never finds it. In fact, that's what the self is. The self is that restless, never-ending activity of the mind looking for a home. The conditioned mind looking for safety, for ground, solid ground, permanent ground. And sometimes that restless activity is really painful, because there's a kind of desperation in it. And in its struggle to find ground, it keeps doing things that causes the world to create painful, you know, painful situations. Like people we love leave us because we're so neurotic or something like that. So, um, so what, we don't necessarily suffer because the world is uncertain and un the world of experience is uncertain and unsatisfying. I mean, that's what, by definition, that's what a saint is or someone who's awake. They're a person, their experience is also unsatisfactory and uncertain, also process, always in process. But their mind isn't constructing a somebody who has a problem with experience or conditions being the way that they are. And that's the difference. An ordinary mind is constantly constructing the experience of tension because experience is the way it naturally is. And a saint is somebody has the same kind of experiences but isn't constructing the sense that it's a problem. So when we do the reflection of suffering in the, at the end of suffering or more involved, there is dukkha, it should be understood. It has been understood. There is a cause. It should be abandoned, meaning seeing the unskillfulness, the insanity of grasping. It has been abandoned. The third noble truth, there is cessation. There is freedom. It should be realized. It has been realized. There is a path. It should be developed. It has been developed. So whether we do the short version 
suffering and the end of suffering, squeeze and release. And that's our observation. Or we're working with the more elaborate 12 insights. There's dukkha, it's relevant, it has been open to. There's a cause, a lawful cause. This is not necessary, this cause. It should be abandoned. It has been abandoned. There is this experience of freedom. This should be fully realized, fully integrated. It has been fully integrated. There is a way. The inspiration of knowing there's a way inspires us to develop it, to commit. This is what my life is about. It has been developed. There are no more problems. I'm here to support the well-being of all beings. Right? So that's you know, what freedom, that's what a, someone who's awake does. They, they're not uh, solving their problem because it's been solved. So they're just here to support other beings being more free. This is from Ajahn Sumedho's chapter. I really have found over the many years that I've read it that short 50-page booklet from Ajahn Sumedho, which all of you have received the link for, on the, it's called The Four Noble Truths. It's really a powerful set of instructions that you can read and reread many times. So I want to read a few paragraphs from the chapter, the Third Noble Truth chapter, The Cessation of Dukkha. So he's talking about cessation. And again, we should have a lot of humility about, not that we haven't experienced cessation, but we haven't realized it. There's a difference from a moment of the mind not grasping and not grasping and the mind realizing the experience of not grasping, like being mindful of the mind not grasping. So he's talking about cessation. To allow this process of cessation to work, we must be willing to suffer. This is why I stress the importance of patience. We have to open our minds to suffering because it is in embracing suffering that suffering ceases. When we find that we are suffering physically or mentally, then we go to the actual suffering that is present. We open completely to it, welcome it, concentrate on it, allowing it to be what it is. That means we must be patient and bear with the unpleasantness of a particular condition. We have to endure boredom, despair, doubt, and fear in order to understand that they cease rather than running away from them. So so when we're studying squeeze and release or suffering and the end of suffering, it's not in order to make the suffering go away, but to realize that suffering goes away. It's a very, it sounds subtle, but it's a very essential difference. We're not doing this practice to make dukkha, suffering, stress go away, but we're realizing it's not there in the way that we imagine that it's there. It isn't what it appears to be to the conditioned mind. And so when it ceases, which all things do, all things come, all things go. So the mind is actually realizing that whatever way that we're involved in a squeeze, being bound up, tight, afraid, or whatever, in life, that it, the conventional attitude we have about it is that like I'm in a really difficult place and I have to fix it. That's added on. But what the practice is, is to be patient with it. That's why, like with that second noble truth, there is a, there is a cause. It should be abandoned. This is the place of patience, like where we're really seeing the tightness, the squeeze, and we know we have some intuition. It doesn't have to be this way. This mind, this heart and body, it doesn't need to be tight. But I'm tight, but it doesn't have to be tight. That's the thread of faith. It doesn't have to be this way. And the seed of faith is, and every time I try to make it go away, I'm just recreating the state of tension. So I'm just going to be right here in this very poignant place of compassion and patience until I realize what my teachers say will be realized. 
which is the cessation of this person who's all bound up. It's all of a sudden not there anymore. That, that person who's bound up is no longer there. And then the mind realizes the third noble truth. There is cessation. Oh my God. I didn't make this go away and it's gone. You see how what a radical shift that is. It's like we go from being so convinced, this is an ordinary human being mind, so convinced that the only way out of the messiness and difficulties of life is to get my act together and to really apply myself to this problem of life and be really skillful and learn how to be free from suffering to a moment where we realize it isn't about self-activity. Freedom from suffering is not about self-activity. So what we had been taking to be the solution, some kind of self-activity, if I only was smart enough, skillful enough, I could free myself to realizing it's the self-activity itself that is the cause for suffering. It's as counterintuitive from the ego point of view as anything can be. No matter how many times we hear something like what I just said, it is always profoundly surprising when the mind gets a glimpse of the truth of it. It just doesn't seem right that it's that simple. Because the conditioned mind is so convinced that to resolve the issue of human suffering is a complex, difficult problem that I have to do. <laughs> that's, that's the kicker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think. <laughs> so, so the dynamic is uh, the squeeze and release. And whenever we're experiencing the squeeze, the very deep conditioning is, I care about this life and I really don't want to be in this contracted state, this fearful state, this needy state, or whatever that that tight experience is for us. I really don't want, what can I do? What can I do? So we're always probing, we're always doing, and we get, you know, and the thing is, there's... Uh, our action to fix the problem of suffering uh, changes the dynamic. So it it seems like we're like we could, if we just stay with it, be effective. Because sometimes what we do brings about a temporary relief, and sometimes what we do causes more tension. So we we feel like we're in the hunt by a keep applying ourselves in the self way. It's a self-project. Happiness or the release of the heart is a self-project. And then we get the instructions from the Buddha because, you know, if we were really successful, we wouldn't be looking to the Buddha for advice. But because we haven't really resolved the problem of being tight, we're interested in whatever advice someone like the Buddha can give. And he says, like Ajahn Sumedho just is basically repeating the Buddha's instructions, stay right there. Be patient until you notice the experience of tightness ceasing on its own. The person who has a problem, that person who has a problem, that experience of being the person who has a problem ceases on its own. And then it's like a radical shift in view from being so convinced that this is my problem to resolve which is the conventional point of view, and it gets us into practice, so it's not entirely wrong. It got us here. I've got a problem I want to solve. That's what gets us to practice. But as we dig into the practice, it's more and more frustrating. I hope you've noticed, right? Trying to be happy in practice, and all we're doing is being more sensitive to the fact of all those more subtle layers of being tight and judging, and being frustrated. and So then we finally, okay, let's just see, maybe he knows what he's talking about. You know, it's like amazing how long it takes for us to just do what we're told to do. Just be right in the middle, and let things be. 
And even, you know, use the props, like be with the breath as it's going in and be with the breath as it's going out to give the mind something to do so it isn't trying to fix the problem of suffering. That's what's so great about these techniques, like being mindful of the breath. It's sort of, we throw the, the doing mind a bone. <laughs> you know, here, do this. Stay out of my way. <laughs> you know, you're not helping. Here, watch the breath coming in. Watch the breath going out. And it sort of soothes the mind. It feels like it's doing something. It is doing something. It's staying away from trying to solve, resolve the problem of suffering. And if you try to be with your breath in order to resolve the problem of suffering, it gets tight, doesn't it? Right? Because the motivation to be with the breath is to fix something, which means there's fear and greed there. And so the result is always tainted by the motivation. What we get is always tainted by the motivation. So eventually we have to realize that not doing is the way. That any self-project is the cause for suffering. That's what attachment means. Attachment or identification or craving or clinging and grasping they're just different ways to say some kind of self-project where we're addressing the problem of human suffering from the point of view of there being a somebody who's suffering. See, that premise is wrong from the beginning. So anything we do perpetuates the experience of dukkha, suffering, stress. So that's why the third noble truth is sort of made a big deal about, right? It's what we call insight. It's a realization. The mind realizes something it hadn't realized before. It's always a surprise because we're so convinced that what we think we know is correct. So when our direct, immediate experience points in a different direction, it's shocking because we didn't think we were wrong, even though we talk about it for years and years that wrong view is wrong. (laughs) You know, it's like not the way it is. It's not Dhamma the way it is. It's a construction of the mind, a projection of the mind, an illusion. You know, we have all these metaphors for it. But that does, even though intellectually we could pass a test, it doesn't mean we've really seen it directly, immediately. That when, see, this is why we take up this, like, we give the ego a stance, right? We say, okay, honey, you can be the knower. You can be the knower of the in-breath and you can be the knower of the out-breath or you can be the knower of feeling or you can be the knower of the mind or you can even be the knower of peace, the knower of freedom, right? But even that stance, even that doing has to be, that rug has to be pulled out too. But first we'll pull, pull out the the more substantial rugs of me trying to fix, me trying to get to a good place. So in a way, the crutch is to uh, notice how spacious, like if we're going to be a doer, let's be awareness. Let's be the doing of awareness. It's a very spacious kind of doing. Instead of like the doing of trying to fix our partners and trying to fix ourselves and you know, trying to fix the world, which is a much more neurotic kind of doing. Let me finish reading uh, this uh, couple paragraphs. So that last sentence again, we have to endure boredom, despair, doubt, and fear in order to understand that they cease rather than running away from them. As long as we do not allow things to cease, we just create new karma, right? Intentional action creates karma. We just create new karma that just reinforces our habits. When something arises, we grasp it and proliferate around it. And this complicates everything. Then these things will be repeated and repeated throughout our lives. We cannot go around following our desires and fears and expect to realize peace. We contemplate fear and desire so that these do not delude us anymore, right? It's just fear. It's just craving. 
We have to know what is deluding us before we can let it go. That's why like in the mindfulness of breathing that we've been doing, we get to that place where we're with just how it feels. Breathing in, noticing how it feels. Breathing out, noticing how it feels. Because the way things feel, any experience, whatever it is that the mind is knowing, the way it feels confuses the mind. If it's pleasant, we feel, it feels like that pleasantness is happening to me. And if it's unpleasant, it feels that like that unpleasantness is happening to me. And if it's neutral, it feels neutral to me. So we think feeling is personal. That's just the habit of the mind to interpret the feeling of whatever we're knowing in the moment as something happening to me. But we can train the mind to see it's just a feeling being known. It's just pleasantness, maybe even intense unpleasantness being known or intense pleasantness being known. Desire and fear are known or to be known as impermanent, unsatisfactory and not self. They are seen and penetrated so that suffering can burn itself away, right? Through not being fed. You can experience that peace through your own meditation. I'm skipping about. You can experience that peace through your own meditation when you've let desire end in your own mind. That which is less left over is very peaceful. When you let desire end in your own mind, that which is left over is very peaceful. That is true peacefulness, the deathless. And now we have this experience. We tend, again, not to realize it, not to see it with a balanced, mindful presence. But like uh, when you're sitting and your mind gets drawn into some drama, and before you get too deep into it, the gathering tension there in your body, in your mind, in your heart wakes you up or wakes the mind up. So wisdom awakens and realizes that it's unnecessary, like the participation, the identification. And so it drops. And so the mind, the knowing mind, was very attentive to the drama and all of a sudden it just implodes, it disappears. And then what's left in that moment before the mind, the conditioned mind, puts something in, like even something, oh, this is it. But before it does anything, what is the flavor of that implosion? What's left in the aftermath of the mind dropping its drama? What's left? And you could say, well, like space or peace. So it's that moment that we need to be interested in. But generally that the openness of that moment, it uh, the habit is to tell ourselves something, to do something there. Like to describe it to ourselves. That would be a relatively neutral thing, but it's still neurotic. To describe it to ourselves there in the middle of the set. Or to sort of in one way or another, own the lightness, the kind of energy of that moment. Like, because uh, whatever tension, you know, that's dropped away. And then it feels like, oh, I know how to, I can do my life because it's so much lighter now. It doesn't feel heavy. So we might, you might notice you start planning. Like, I'll do this. You know, maybe I'll, maybe I'll become a ceramist. <laughs> you know, or, you know, do this or do that. We just like all these projects because now life isn't a burden. So then we're craving, like, I just want to be done with it. Then we fall into like, no, no. And we're into the becoming energy because now life feels lighter. So why not make it our playground? But then we lose, immediately lose, begin to lose that that freedom. that is true peacefulness, the deathless. When you really know that as it is, you realize the truth of cessation in which there is no self, but there's still alertness and clarity. The real meaning of bliss is that peaceful transcendent consciousness. But because there's nothing there, the conditioned mind neurotically feels it has to fill it up. So, 
for most of us, those moments are just that, just a moment. And then it's filled up. And then it's easily forgotten because the conditioned mind doesn't really know what to do with that moment. When craving ceases. Now, remember, this is happening all the time. Craving is ceasing all the time. So the third noble truth is pointing to uh, um, many realizations, like really realizing that moment when craving ceases. What is that moment? And what Ajahn Sumedho said earlier in this passage, we have to really be there in the craving Like awareness, wisdom has to get established right there in the craving, which is very unpleasant, in order to be there when it ceases. It's too late to say, oh, I should be there, (laughs) because then that's a neurotic movement. So we practice being free and unafraid and aware in the experience of the mind being tight. But now we're not feeding or reinforcing the tightness so we're sort of increasing the probability, the likelihood of the cessation, the moment of cessation, because instead of being the one attached to the process of suffering, of worrying or planning or whatever, there's an awareness of it and a leaving it alone. So cessation is close and then it happens and then we see it. And we have to learn, it's like a, a talent to to not lose the evenness of mind because, you know, we kind of, what's that phrase, you know, learn our chops with dukkha. Like that's how we learn to be mindful with dukkha, with pain, with what's unpleasant. Isn't that true? The unpleasantness of the body, the unpleasantness of restlessness. But we don't know, the mind doesn't necessarily know how to be steady, clear, non-neurotic with freedom. It's like a, it's a new skill. We have to learn how not to add or take anything away from that experience, but just leave it alone. Because that's what we do when we're with dukkha, with stress or uneasiness in the body. We're learning to trust it completely, radically trust it, right? I'm not trying to make the pain go away. I'm not trying, I, I give up. I'm just going to let it be. Well, that same thing with the freedom. And this is like, there is cessation, it should be realized. Like how to let it reveal itself. How to be steady there with it. Steady in the non-doing. Just letting it express or reveal itself. There's a little bit more here. If we do not allow cessation, if we do not allow cessation, then we tend to operate from assumptions we make about ourselves without even knowing that we are doing what we are doing. Sometimes it is not until we start meditating that we begin to realize how in our lives so much fear and lack of confidence, how in our lives so much fear and lack of confidence come from childhood experiences. I remember when I was a little boy, I had a good friend who turned on me and rejected me. I was distraught for months after that. It left an indelible impression in my mind. Then I realized through meditation just how much a little incident like that had affected my future relationships with others. I always had tremendous fear of rejection. I never even thought of it until that particular memory kept rising up into my consciousness during meditation. The rational mind knows that it's ridiculous to go around thinking about tragedies of childhood. But if they keep coming up into consciousness when you are middle-aged, maybe they are trying to tell you something about assumptions that were formed when you were a little child. Right? So these are the patterns we have to learn to be steady with. Now, they may not relate to specific memory, but the patterns, the predictableness of our patterns, whatever it is, sleepiness, restlessness, thinking about the future, dwelling on the past, raging, judging. You know, what are those patterns? And that's what we get steady with. And really seeing the, like, whatever this dynamic is, this grasping dynamic, this tight dynamic, whatever it is, it should be abandoned. That's enough. That's enough wisdom just to know this should be abandoned. 
and let that steady the mind. And then he says, finally, when you begin to feel memories or obsessive fears coming up in meditation, rather than becoming frustrated or upset by them, see them as something to be accepted into consciousness so that you can let them go. You can arrange your daily life so that you never have to look at these things. Then the conditions for them to actually arise are minimal. You can dedicate yourself to a lot of important causes and keep busy. Then these anxieties and nameless fears never become conscious. But what happens when you let go? The desire or obsession moves, and then it moves to cessation. It ends. And then you have the insight that there is cessation of desire, craving. So the third aspect of the noble truth is cessation. Is cessation has been realized. So you see, it's just like so counterintuitive of running from our problems or hiding or trying to fix. But using our suffering to realize cessation, like that it isn't what it appears. So as long as we think our problems are things that I have to fix, then we'll never or hide from, we'll never realize. We have to, we have to use the uh, dynamics in our mind that trigger selfing, self-centeredness, to see that that self-centeredness ceases. Because when we're involved in self-centered activity, like right now, we could be involved in the self-centered activity of wanting to understand you know, this teaching. So instead, we, we kind of have a choice. We can say, yeah, that's true. I really do want to understand. Or we could be reflective about the tension of being the person, the dukkha of being the person who wants to understand. And then we can notice the cessation of that. And you see, the more we have that insight, it begins to generalize. So maybe all self-dramas cease without personally having to resolve them. And then it sort of begs the question, well, what do we do? And that's just another, you see, that's just another self-drama. I have to do something. I need to have something to do, right? Isn't that, isn't that, isn't that a compelling feeling? But are we going to pick that up as the truth? So then we're in the doing. Like, I've got to figure out, now that I'm free, I've got to figure out what I'm going to do in the world. Or we could notice that that tension ceases. That doing will happen, maybe. Or non-doing will happen. But our orientation is towards cessation. That's the way, that's the you know, Eightfold Path, it's a way of living that is all dedicated to cessation, right? It's like a way of relating or showing up in the moment that is valuing cessation, valuing the cessation that things end so I don't have to make them end. Or you could say things arise so I don't have to make them arise. You know, we have these silly cliches that we say, like, no, just let everything happen on its own. I'm just going to trust. You know, we, we say things like that. But what would happen if we actually, you know, that, that cliche lines up with our actual insight, understanding, and we just trusted that? I mean, I really feel this is so central to my own practice of, you know, over the last probably second half of my Dharma career, you know, I've been at it now for over 30 years. And, you know, I'd say for at least the last 15, my practice is mostly about learning how to let the guy who wants to be enlightened or the guy who wants to be a good meditator or the guy who wants to be wise, letting that suffering cease over and over and over and over again. And then because of the momentum in the mind of wanting to be that special person, that enlightened person or whatever, but not feeling like, oh, I have to get rid of that neurotic thought or I have to 
refine it so that it, it's, more, it's not so simplistic and idealistic, but now it's more nuanced and real. But just, let, just letting it cease. It arises, that's okay, because it will cease. Pettiness arises, it's okay, it will cease. Sublime, beautiful, expansive thoughts arise and they cease. Maybe I'll just read a little from Sharon Salzberg and then open it up for discussion for the last 10, 15 minutes. This is from her book on faith, and she's right at the beginning talking a little bit about the Four Noble Truths. She says, within 10 minutes, we might see sadness, amusement, anger, kindness. We might feel physical pleasure, then discomfort, then relief, then apprehension as the discomfort emerges again. We might see ourselves as powerful one moment and powerless the next. As our thoughts and feelings and sensations shift and change, any superficial idea of who we are unravels. We may strive mightily to hold it together because we fear being nothing, being nowhere. As long as we're ignorant of what lies below the surface identifications, the teachings say we will be unhappy. Is there a way out? The third noble truth affirms that without reservation. This truth is described in different ways. As wisdom that understands fully the nature of life, like like nothing's fixed. As liberation from distorted concepts of who we think we are by seeing clearly who we actually are. As boundless, unimpeded love for ourselves and all others without exception as experience of that which lies beyond our conditioning, that which frees us from suffering. The meditation techniques developed by the sages of old, embedded in the fourth noble truth, were said to be the way to achieve this liberation. All of this, all of this suggested a radically different way to tell a story, the way the Buddha told it. And so this is that switch and, you know, in Buddhism, they make a big deal of it, maybe after the time of the Buddha. You know, they really made this, like, are you a worldly human being or are you one of the noble ones? And when we, when the more the mind understands the experience of cessation, where it realizes it sort of no longer believes I have to do something, that, but sees that I have to do something as the cause for suffering, now remember, a, the cessation of I have to do something is, isn't, I, have, I don't have to do something, right? That's just as much how I have to do something. Like, I have to do the something that's not doing anything. So it's not about not doing anything, which is this idea that, oh, okay, the practice is about being passive. It's about the non-identification with doing. It's not personalizing the doing. It's not about not doing anything, but it's not, it's not a self-activity. So she, uh, Sharon talks about a radically different way to tell a life story. So it's a story of renunciation or putting down. You know, we have these words we hear a lot from the Buddhist talks, renunciation, relinquishment, disenchantment, letting go, cessation, right? Versus attainment, you know, or becoming free, becoming enlightened, which we hear, but it's, you know, it's sort of a, another setup. So I'll leave it here. I have more to say, but maybe other people have some things to say. And uh, one of our community members donated a really good mic, and you have to hold it pretty close for it to work. And uh, that way we'll hear each other. So if anybody would like to ask a question or share some experiences from your own practice, just raise your hand and we'll get you the mic. What comes to mind about experiences of cessation? Understanding, clarifying the way. Yeah. Meg and then Raha. All right. So when you said... Um, when we're sitting and we're having these thoughts, then I'm, I'm realizing, okay, I'm tight and go back to my breath. 
and then I go back to my breath so I have to with my breath and just release. But now, I think what I, I understand you saying is God kind of attached to my breath, thinking, oh, it's my breath that's giving me this release, and it's not. Right. What I guess what I'm saying is, like, in that moment when you find the mind is suffering, is tight about something, then it, depending on how much steadiness, if there's a lot of steadiness, then don't come back to the breath or certainly don't immediately come back to the breath, but make peace with the experience of being a suffering human being that's caught, the mind that's caught, that's worrying, that's wanting, that's whatever it is. Be there, let wisdom and awareness be there until the experience changes on its own. Not because you want it to change, because that would be greed, or you're afraid that it's not going to change, because that would be aversion. But the mind is just interested, that pure interest, right? And then the cessation happens. Like whatever that construction was of somebody worrying about something, like everything that's ever been and ever will be, things come and go. So that whole web of you worrying about something or whatever that drama is, that will cease. And especially if the way that you're showing up is that simple, clear, balanced presence, so you're not feeding it with identification, with attachment, right? So then the supporting causes for that drama, they're not there anymore. So it's just going to cease. It's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of being patient. Now, there are all kinds of dynamics that keep it going. So when we say being patient, it means as if it's never going to stop, as if it's never going to cease, we're there with it. We know it is going to cease, but it's okay if it doesn't cease. So we're really practicing that equanimity with the discomfort of whatever the drama is. Because remember, if we've been involved in a drama for a while, it gets imprinted energetically in the body, right? So the body's tight now too, in a way that reflects the tightness of the thinking. So then even when we're not feeding the thinking, we're not identified, but we're just observing the thoughts, and it feels like we're not feeding them, but the yuckiness in the body, the tension in the body is triggering the thoughts. So we have to be patient with the unpleasantness in the body and whatever activity there is in the mind. We have to be very allowing as if it's never going to end. So you can even use that image as if it's never going to end because that will help you get a sense of how much patience, how much interest is actually there or whether there's some slight aversion, really paying attention in order to make it go away. Now, if you can't be steady there, then come back to the breath and realize with something more simple and ordinary, the breath, that the mind can be really stable. So with our meditation objects like the breath, the mind is relearning that it can be profoundly stable and fearless and clear. But it's relatively easy with the breath than with something that's seductive and neurotic, like a problem that I have, right? But the more stability you get with the breath or with body sensations or with hearing, then when something emerges because of the momentum of habit, some drama arises, then we have more stability to be with it for a little bit longer. And then when we can't be with it with any stability, then that's the place, that's where the art is. Do I stick it out a little longer or do I direct the attention back to the primary anchor, the breath? And it's an art, you know, it's, Sometimes you'll make the mistake of staying with what's hard to stay with and you don't realize it, but you're actually spinning with it. You're reinforcing it. You think you're being mindful of it, but you're really caught in it. And other times, we too quickly go back to the breath. We, we underestimate the amount of wisdom and steadiness that is there that could really learn a few things, just letting that drama be what it is, but not feeding it so that maybe there will be a moment of really seeing it cease. Maybe there's no longer any supporting causes, so it just ceases. And the mind has another glimpse, 
at what remains when self-centered activity ceases. What remains? And that's what we call the unconditioned. So it's a, a taste of freedom when the mind realizes the mind without self-centered activity. And the thing is, that what the mind is realizing is something that that can be there even in the midst of what was formerly self-centered activity. right? Because it's seen something that's true all the time, but it's just seeing it initially at a very particular moment. But what it sees is always true, right? It's seeing that self-activity isn't what it appears to be. It is an activity. Self-activity is an activity. It's something that's being known. But it doesn't, as it implies, as self-centered activity implies, it doesn't refer back actually to something, some fixed self. It seems like it does because we haven't seen its cessation. That's why seeing self-activity cease is so profoundly transforming because it changes the mind's relationship to all self-activity. It doesn't matter what the self-activity is about. You might learn it observing the cessation of self-activity in one particular place, but it learns something there about all self-activity. Yeah. Raha, do you want to use the mic? Yeah, and still speak up. Even yeah, and, and real close, aim it right at your mouth. Um, so I'm assuming you're not encouraging the passiveness of uh, action. You are encouraging the right intention in action. So, and it's very hard to understand within yourself that am I having the right intention, or is it the right moment to make the action, or to escape? Wait until you're in a peaceful, more peaceful place, then take the action. Yeah. Because then when you are in that peaceful place, then your action is even further making action. So. Yeah. And this is this is our job as a practitioner is to know when our work right now in this moment is to. refrain from intentional actions that we create negative karma, negative effects, and when we should be, what we can do to create positive karma, positive effects. And more what we've been talking about tonight, Raha, is beginning to intuit um, stepping out of karma, right? So the mind's not... um, identifying or personalizing the intentions. And even they say like, uh, it's like intention leads to intention. So when the mind isn't identifying with intention, there may be activity, but there's no sort of, uh, there's no personalizing of the intention. There's no personalizing of the karma. So with the third noble truth, the the mind is having a different relationship to the karma. There's still this very lawful universe that we're in, but the mind's relationship to intention has shifted. You could say, I mean, this is it's hard to talk about this, but the most skillful karma is to not identify with intention. You know? So there's the skillful karma of refraining from acting out unskillful intentions, right? That's an intention to refrain. You know, I feel the impulse to hit you, but this I'm going to pay attention to this other intention, which is don't do that, right? And that will keep me from hitting you. And that's one intention. Another intention is like the intention to be kind and to be loving and to be generous. And then there's the intention to just let everything alone, let everything be. But you're not, you're not not acting, you're just not directing the action, the activity of your life from a self-view of somebody who wants to be skillful. You're not taking up that view to be skillful, to create good karma. doesn't mean you're not creating good karma or setting good things in motion, 
You're just not doing it from a self-view. And it turns out that the karma that's created is even the causes that are set in motion or the, you know, what's set in motion is even more beautiful when you're not trying to set something beautiful in motion. Does that make sense? Hopefully a little bit. So it's it's really uh, this third noble truth, understanding cessation, is really the fruit, uh, sort of the ultimate understanding of karma. Like if we really want to set in motion something beautiful, then you have to let the idea of me setting something in beautiful in motion cease. And then whatever that activity remains, the activity of our life still continues, right? The Buddha, like assuming that he was a fully awake person, the activity of his life continued for 45 years. And he, what he did in those 45 years is still affecting us right now. So he set in motion a lot of good. And uh, so, but presumably, there wasn't anybody doing that or anybody claiming that. There wasn't that activity going on in the mind anymore by, you know, according to the tradition, that ceased. The taking personally, taking intention personally ceased at the moment he became fully awake. That's what that means. When we're fully awake, the mind has uprooted any tendency to personalize intention. So in a way, intention's not what we normally think of because intention is sort of like my intention to do this, my motivation. When we're, you know, I don't know, but I'm a presuming, and for awake a person, there's just that movement of nature. It's not a personal intention. It's just something that leads to someone saying something or something that leads to somebody doing something. Any last comments as we finish our class together? Wrap it up for us. Yeah, Eric, you want to pass the mic over to Eric? Um, as you were talking about now doing cessation, I was just reminded of a couple of, analog- of analogies that I think are really relevant. One is the um, story of the Buddha encountering the lute player. The lute player. Like a stringed instrument. Too tightly versus uh, too loosely, sort of finding that balance. Um, and then the other one was, and I've mentioned this to you, but I just wanted to share with everyone else because I think it's a really poignant uh, analogy. But Ajahn Brahm uses this analogy. Of, uh, he talks about this in terms of meditation specifically and stilling the mind, but I think it can sort of be generalized applied to other things. He talks about um, holding a glass of water still, and as hard as you might try to hold that glass of water still in your hand, um, there will always be a little bit of movement, of slight muscle tremors in your, in your, uh, in your fingers. And uh, you really like to to get that water to be still, the way you do it is actually to set the glass down Yeah, it's such a beautiful metaphor about not personalizing sense experience. Like that's the putting it down. Yeah, thanks, Eric. That's a beautiful way to end. Let's just take a few seconds of silence together. And it might be nice to send Haya and Jimmy, two of our Buddhist studies community members. Haya's closing in on the end of her chemo. She has one more chemo session in a couple weeks. And Jimmy's having hip surgery on the 23rd, so just in a couple days. So bring them to mind and wish them well. Thanks, everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, 
or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.